Darwin when he wrote The Descent of Man and he wrote about the differences between the sexes. The female came out in the shape of a Victorian housewife because Darwin was a Victorian man and that's how he saw the world. And really what it took to overturn this stereotype was the second wave of feminism from the 1970s to hit evolutionary biology and for females to receive the same education as men and to head out into the field and observe animals with their own eyes. When you see all of these different ways of being female, I think it, it, it reminds us of the role of diversity. Diversity is the grip that drives evolution forward. When you see how that diversity runs wild in the animal kingdom, it helps us be more understanding of the female experience. Welcome to Mother Podcasts. In this episode, I sat down for a conversation with the legendary Lucy Cook. She's a British zoologist, author of award-winning books, a BBC documentary producer, and just a trailblazer in the fields of evolutionary biology. In this episode, we covered her latest book called Bitch, where she pulls together fascinating research about the females of the animal kingdom. We talked about lions, hyenas, birds, whales, and example by example, she busted so many myths our society has created about femininity. Ultimately, we discussed how Lucy and other female scientists are challenging traditional views in evolutionary biology. What was your story of deciding to write this book about the female animal? My journey started a rather long time ago when I was a student at Oxford studying under Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biology. And I was taught that females were basically losers. We were a feminine footnote to the macho main event. Males were the dominant drivers of evolutionary change. They were the competitive, dominant, promiscuous leaders, right? And active in everything that they did. And females were followers. They were passive and only reacted to males. And that was pretty depressing. <laughs> Couldn't see my reflection in the animal kingdom, but I was only 18 and I didn't think that much about it. Then cut to 20 years later and I'm working as a presenter for the BBC and I'm making a series about animal communication. And I, we were trying to have a conversation with a lion and I, which sounds extraordinary, but it's actually not that difficult. You just got to have a rec recording of a lion, which you blaze out into the gloom uh, and something to hide in, preferably with wheels. Anyway, so we were in this vehicle and we attracted three lions, a female and two males. And then the female pinned us to the spot for over two hours. And I asked the lion communication expert that we were with, I was like, what's going on? And he said, she wants to mate with us. And I said, wasn't she mating with one of the males that she's with? And he said, no, female lions are incredibly promiscuous and they'll have sex with multiple males maybe a hundred times during their fertility period. And I was like, I didn't know that. That doesn't fit with what I was taught as a student. And that was really the first inkling that I had that these stereotypes of passive, coy, chaste, submissive females were not entirely true. And from that point on, I became interested. In any stories, I started gathering stories that I came across where females didn't fit into this particular stereotype. And eventually, the list became so long, I wrote a book. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about that paradigm? So in the book, you talk a lot about how there's this sort of overarching myth or overarching fundamental that's you know, male are the aggressive, the competitive, the promiscuous, the 
the seeking out many partners, many females to, to diversify their reproductive future. And then the female, like you say, is the coy, the chase, the quiet. How has your, your research and, and writing of the book broke down that myth? Yeah, absolutely. So for a start, it, this myth is very old. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. So it's as old as zoology itself. And believe it or not, the, the reason why Aristotle, who was the first zoologist, he's a grandfather of zoology, believed it is because eggs are passive and they don't move, whereas sperm have got tails and so they're active. It's ridiculous. But this is the kind of the root source of this idea of males being active and females being passive. And then, of course, Darwin, when he wrote The Descent of Man, and he wrote about the differences between the sexes. It was him who branded, basically, the female came out in the shape of a Victorian housewife because Darwin was a Victorian man. And that's how he saw the world. That's, that was what was seemly at the time. And so that's where it comes from. And then it was repeated for much time. And really, what it took to overturn this stereotype was for feminism, the second wave of feminism from the 1970s to hit evolutionary biology and for females at the same time, women, to receive the same education as men and to head out into the field and observe animals with their own eyes. And when they see, saw, for example, a female langur, which is a beautiful monkey in India, which Sarah Blafferhurdy, who's this amazing feminist scientist in America, when she saw or females soliciting sex from all the males outside of the group that, that she was in, she didn't ignore it and say, oh, that's just, I don't know what's going on there and I'm just going to ignore it, like everybody before her had. She actually said, oh, that's interesting. Why is that happening? And so investigated it. So really, that's a big part of this is about egalitarian education and the results of how what that delivers and, and how that has rescued the reputation of female animals or, or continues to. And, and it is a great advertisement for the need of, for diversity within science because science is all about asking questions and you tend to ask questions from your own perspective. And I don't blame a lot of the male scientists who weren't curious about females because I understand why they wouldn't be. But I'm grateful for the fact that women scientists were able to receive an education and start asking questions from their perspective that's delivered this more complete idea of what it means to be female. We'll start with Sarah Blafferhurdy because I think she was really the kind of pioneer in all of this. And she's an American scientist. She was educated at Harvard and she was the first to investigate the uh, promiscuity in in primates and she realized that that female languors were being incredibly promiscuous not just for wanton fun but because they were being good mothers because what was going on with languors was that males when they take over a territory will tend to be infanticidal they will kill the babies of the females within that territory. And that's because they want to mate with the females themselves. And if the females are nursing, they're not receptive to mating. So the males have this strategy, this really brutal infanticidal strategy to force the females into being fertile. But the females are not passive. They have a strategy themselves. And that is to mate with all the males in the area. Because if they do that, then males are less likely to kill their offspring if they've recently mated with them because they might be the father. 
Obviously, all this happens in animals at a subconscious level. Males are not even, no no animal is conscious that sex delivers babies, but evolution has programmed these actions into them. Yeah, so basically within human society, when we think of female promiscuity, we think of all sorts of bad names and it's there's only bad names associated with it. But when you look at the animal kingdom now, thanks to these extraordinary trailblazing feminist scientists and the work that they've done, we can see that in every instance, females are equally strategic. Sexu- uh, uh, fe- that's my dog barking. Females are just as sexually strategic as males. That strategy frequently involves mating with multiple males, and it's all about being a good mother, whether it's to prevent infanticide or to just increase the genetic pool of your offspring so you've more chance of hitting the genetic jackpot. When Patricia Goati was, she was the, a, another amazing American scientist who's really challenged these paradigms. She was the first to use DNA testing to to look at a clutch of eggs because the perceived idea was that all birds are monogamous. And she thought, I wonder whether that's really true. And so she used DNA fingerprinting on a clutch of eggs and found that basically a single clutch in a nest had multiple fathers. And when she took this very meticulous data to a big conference, she was told that uh, in no uncertain terms, the only way that this was possible was if the females were raped. And that's completely impossible. Songbirds, uh, the males don't have penises. Both males and females have this multi-purpose hole called a cloaca and they have to line the holes up and the male has to balance on the female's back and it's all really precarious and completely impossible unless the female is complicit. So there is no such thing as sexual coercion amongst songbirds. But that's how deep this this double standard, this idea of that females are not allowed to have sexual agency is embedded, that it took 10 more years of female scientists putting radio trackers on the backs of birds, tracking their movements and seeing that they were indeed flying off into other males' territories in order to solicit extra pair matings with these males for that idea to slowly get overturned and for it to be recognised that females are mating with multiple males and that's their strategy and they're doing it so that they increase the gene pool of their offspring, which makes total sense and is because they're trying to do the best for their offspring. But it, it is really fascinating to me how I was really shocked at how hard some of these trailblazing feminist scientists had to fight to get their data accepted by the scientific community. It just goes, really just goes to show how deep these biases run. And you got to meet quite a few of them during writing of the book, right? Yeah, that was, that for me, was just the absolute joy of writing this book was that I got to meet these incredible women, many of whom are now in their 80s and have been recognized within their field by this time, but not in the broader popular culture. Their stories have not reached people who don't study evolutionary biology, haven't heard of Sarah Blafferhurdy or, or Patricia Goati or Jean Altman. And they should have. They should be as famous as Richard Dawkins because their findings are now woven into the fabric of what we are what we understand by what it means to be female. So that they have they've rewritten the book. And I and I feel like they should be much more their work should be more recognized. And so it was an extraordinary privilege to be able to meet them, to tell their stories. And 
to be mentored by them. Because the other thing was is that they were just so generous. Because big deal professors with huge canons of work, they can be a bit snooty if you haven't read every one of their papers and they'll test you a lot of the time when you meet them. I was pretty scared when I first met Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy and I was right at the beginning of my research and I thought, oh God, I've read everything and so all my questions are going through them again and again. And then I turned up and and she literally couldn't have been sweeter. She'd invited me to her home and she baked me a pie because she'd listened to my book on audiobook and she knew I really liked vultures. So she baked me a vulture pie, which didn't have vultures in it, but it had plastic vultures on the top. And then she was like, come and look at the vultures. We found some on the land. And and, and just, I was really just won over by their by their generosity and their brilliance. So, which was a really wonderful combination and not something that I'd expected. Can we talk a bit more about songbirds? Because something else that you talk about in your book is this, again, another myth about the fact that men are competitive or the male is competitive and then females are the nurturing, the all about sisterhood, all about community. And songbirds disprove that little myth. Can you talk about that a bit more? Yeah. So this is a classic, right? So it's not considered to be feminine to be competitive, right? It's only males are competitive, let alone aggressively competitive. Try telling that to a meerkat and or, or try telling that to a female spotted hyena and she'll laugh in your face after she's bitten it off. Female animals are every bit as competitive as males. Whereas males are often competing over over females are often competing over resources. But in songbirds are a great story to do with this because for forever We've just assumed that theme only male songbirds sing. So it was a classic example of Darwinian sexual selection that males... That's my dog. I'm so sorry. Kobe, stop it. No. Shh. It's a classic example of... Sorry about that. It's a male dog. He gets really upset when I'm talking about females all the time. And it's because I called my book Bitch. <laughs> I think he's resentful when I'm doing podcasts. Anyway, so with songbirds, they're a classic example of of Darwinian thinking because male songbirds sing and the idea is that they evolve these incredibly elaborate songs in order to win the females, right? So they'll compete with song and then the female chooses or is the, the male with the best song wins that the female. So it was just a, it was assumed that female songbirds were dumb. They didn't speak. They had nothing to compete with one another over. It's completely not true. And and this is something that's only been overturned in, I think, in the last five or 10 years. It's incredibly recent. And actually, 74% of female songbirds sing. Um, And they are competing as well. They're competing over territories and they're competing over mates and they're competing over resources in exactly the same way that males are. It's just that we didn't know that because most of the the songbirds that we have in the UK don't sing because they're migratory species. And in these species, the males arrive first, they compete for territory, and then the females turn up and they don't need to sing that much. And singing is expensive, believe it or not. You need a bigger brain in order to sing. So when you're a bird, when you're flying for a living, every gram counts, right? So you don't grow a bigger brain to sing nice songs unless you really have to. So the females don't because they don't need to, and they need all their resources in order to lay those big old eggs. But if you go to Australia where there's no migratory songbirds, they live in the territory all year round, the females are singing away just as much as the males. Had Darwin been an Australian, he would have known that. And who knows what an impact 
that would have had on him. He, he might never have said the things that he said. What's fascinating is that that's, like I said, that's relatively recently that's come out. This process of redefining the female is something that we're in now. It's a current paradigm shift. It started with the likes of Sarah Blafferhurdy and Patricia Goati back in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, but it's still very much something that, that, that is happening today. Super interesting what you said, that the males compete for the females and the females compete for the resources. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of across the board? Uh, you see that pattern with different animals? It's a broad rule, but it's not universally true. And that is the reason, for example, why meerkat society is, is, is so brutal and homicidal, which, is, which it is. Meerkats were voted, and there was a scientific study found them to be the most murderous mammal on the planet, more murderous even than humans. Every meerkat has a one in five chance of being killed by another meerkat, most likely its own mother or sister or daughter. And that's because Females are ruthlessly competitive over resources. And so you'll have in a meerkat den, you'll have the dominant female and she lives in this family den with her sisters and daughters. And she doesn't want any of those to reproduce because she doesn't want to share the resources. They live in the Kalahari, right? There's not a lot to go around. So what she wants is to be the is to dominate all the resources so she can pump out as many babies as possible. So if any of her offspring If her sisters or her daughters dare get pregnant, they'll be evicted from the den. And, and, and if they were to give birth, then their babies would be killed. And she will actually co-opt them to wet nurse her own babies. They have to nurse their murderer's babies instead. So that's a great example of a very extreme society that's based around female competition at its very heart. It's not based around male competition, meerkat society. It's based around ruthless, homicidal female competition. Now, I'm not saying that that matriarchy is any better than a patriarchy. It's just a competitive, right? But it just involves females. Now, you do get females competing for mates as well. For example, in because Darwin's paradigm had... Was, was based around the idea of male competition and female choice. So he did give females agency in that he recognized that females, although he had to do a dance around it because he wanted females to be passive but choosing at the same time. So he's a bit awkward in his writing, but he says females, the, the, the winning male, the female chooses. He wins her, but she, she chooses the winning male. So he did recognize that females had some agency. But So for a long time, male choice was ignored. And there was this idea that's been like a universal law that was drummed into me at university, which is sperm are cheap and eggs are expensive. So males will be promiscuous and females will be choosy. And so that's based on the idea that males have an unlimited amount of sperm at their disposal, that they can just mate and mate and mate and mate. And that's what drives them. And This, goodness knows the fight that there's been over disproving this. It was actually an, an, um, a male scientist, Donald Dewsbury, who was the first to say, I, I don't think sperm is limitless because actually what animal ejaculates one sperm at a time? One sperm may cost less energy than one egg, but what male actually only ejaculates just the one sperm? Of course, the whole ejaculate is energetically as expensive as an egg, right? It's anyway, so the, just again, it's just this sort of lunacy. But so anyway, what I'm coming round to saying is that females do compete over males sometimes because sperm is not limitless, right? So for example, 
and this is a sort of hilarious example, amongst gorillas, females will compete with each other over the alpha male's sperm because they want to mate with the alpha male, but his sperm is not limitless. So they, they'll fight with one another and sometimes they'll even go up and sort of, <laughs> sort of try and shove, shove if, if a female who's lower in rank is mating with the male, they'll shove them and 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 sort of brawl, you know, <laughs> over, you know, trying to interrupt the sex in order to try and get to the male's pr- sperm because gorillas actually have tiny testicles. It's a shocking thing, but a silverback has absolutely like little acorns. They're really tiny. He doesn't have by any means limitless amounts of sperm. And so the females will fight over that. But so females do fight over males, but as a general rule, they're more likely to fight over resources, but not exclusively. Very long answer. No, it's great. Thank you so much for all of this. Another myth I wanted to talk about, um, or a topic I wanted to talk about was menopause. Mm. Um, and this myth um, that, or this you know, concept that the point of life is to reproduce, and when you're done with reproducing, you die. Can you talk a little bit about then what the hell is menopause about and how many animals actually go through menopause? Yeah, this, as a woman of a certain age, struggling with hot flashes and, and the like myself, I, this story really spoke to me because amongst well, it, for a long time, it was thought that we were freaks because we were the only animals on the planet where females went through menopause. And, the, and it was thought that the only reason we did it was, that we, was because we were propped up by modern medicine. And we basically, we were, we should really be dying out alongside our ovaries in, in, the, in our 40s and 50s, which is pretty depressing. And then, thank goodness, we found that there were other species that do go through the menopause. And those are randomly, seemingly randomly, all species of toothed whale, of which they are narwhals, as if they could get any cooler, because they're the, like the unicorn ones with the big horn coming off the end of their nose, short fin pilot whales and beluga whales and orcas, killer whales, right? So killer whales have been most extensively studied. And so we now know that the, that the great thing about killer whale society is, whereas we used to think that killer whale society was led by males because they're bigger, and that's what everybody always assumes, that the males are in charge because they're bigger. But now we know it's not the males that are in charge. It's these postmenopausal grannies that are the leaders of their society. And so what's happened is the, the reason why the orcas go through menopause is twofold. It's one, so they don't compete with their daughters. So they're not like the meerkats and they're having to kill their daughter's babies so they don't compete over the resources. Instead, they stop reproducing halfway through their life so that they instead they invest in in their offspring and their offspring's offspring instead, right? So that's one one reason. But also, they, it looks like both orcas and humans, we've actually selected for longevity. We live a long time. Like compared to other species, even elephants that live into their sort of 70s or 60s, rather, elephants live into their 60s and they'll reproduce all the way into their 60s. Seems unbelievable, particularly when you know that they have a 22-month pregnancy. It's like an astonishing thing. But they still give birth in their 60s. But we live into our hundreds and orcas do as well. So it looks like we have evolved to live longer than our reproductive fitness. So we don't, repro- we don't compete with our daughters, but also we're repositories for wisdom. 
Mockers have this extraordinary culture. They're incredibly clever. They have these brains that are a magnet magnet for superlatives. There's a seven kilo brain with more um, surface area for cognitive thought than any other animal on the planet. And they, they have these extraordinary photographic memories for 25 years. They can remember things. And and, the, and, it, and it's these old, wise, old lady whales that are leading their society. So they're not, and they're passing down the culture. They're teaching all the other whales how to hunt seals off ice flows or how to, where to find the salmon in times of hardship. So that suddenly reflects rather well on us. It's not like we've been propped up by modern medicine and we shouldn't actually be here. It's that we actually have a very important role in society, and that is to be wise leaders. I think in one of your interviews, or maybe in the book, you were saying how orcas have capacity for empathy and emotion that we don't even completely understand. I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, their brains are just extraordinary. So they have this thing called the paralimbic lobe, which is an area of the brain that we don't have. Only orcas and dolphins have it. And where it sits in the brain suggests, as you say, that they process empathy and emotions in a realm that we, we don't understand. And they have this extraordinary, cohesive, inclusive society. So not only do they very much work together as hunters, but also they're very supportive of disabled members of their society. This blew my mind, but off the coast of Washington State, where I was, I went and, and hung out with wild orca who are studying the orcas there and protecting them. There's an individual orca that has uh, scoliosis of the spine, so it has a bent spine, and it can't swim as fast as the other members. But that animal has lived a long and healthy life because it's supported by the rest of its community. So I found the empathetic or the empathic nature of these wise old lady whales and their inclusive society incredibly moving and, and incredibly inspiring. Yeah, I remember when I was um, reading about this in your book, or again, it was one of your presentations, maybe I had almost goosebumps. I was getting emotional from that story. What a beautiful animal. I also wanted to ask, How does conversation about sex and gender come into play? And can you maybe, for the audience, kind of talk about the difference between sex and gender and maybe also talk about what can we learn from the animal kingdom, maybe from bonobos, about the spectrum of sex? Absolutely. We're in the middle of a big discussion about sex and gender. So firstly, my book is about female animals. When I use the term female, I'm talking about biological sex, uh, not gender. We generally don't think of animals as having gender because gender is a social and psychological construct. You can't ask an animal whether it's male or female. It's not possible to divine an animal's gender identity. Whereas biological sex has a very straightforward definition of whether you produce eggs or sperm. So if you produce eggs, you're a female. And if you produce sperm, you're a male. And it is binary in the fact that there are just two sex cells. There are eggs or sperm. But the problem is that there's an awful lot of animals that don't fit into one of two neat binary buckets because they produce either eggs and sperm or they can flip between the two or there's some extraordinary animals in the animal kingdom that can do amazing. There are barnacles that hedge their bets and depending on where they land, they may turn into males or females. Or if you've got animals that have temperature-regulated sex determinations, it's the temperature that they're incubated at that determines whether they come out as males or females, but they may also have genetic sex determination and 
that may then override the temperature and sex determination. So you'll have genetic females, which are XX, that actually develop into males and then have different characteristics to those males that are XY. There's just this extraordinary, beautiful, fantastic spectrum of diversity of the expression of sex, right? And how it manifests in the natural world. And sexuality too, right? And a great example of how plastic sexuality is are the bonobos. And I'm glad you brought them up because I do love to talk about the bonobos because they are our closest relative alongside chimpanzees. So we share 99% of our DNA with bonobos and chimpanzees. But people are generally much more familiar with chimpanzees, the chimpanzee story. And of course, that has always been used as a model for human ancestry, this idea that we are patriarchal and warlike because that is how chimpanzees are. And they are. Certainly the chimpanzees that you find in in no, I get my north, south, east, and west right. In West Africa, are definitely patriarchal and warlike. If you now look at the chimpanzees in East Africa, they're actually more egalitarian because there's a difference in culture. But anyway, let's just for the sake of things, we'll talk about the standard model, which is that chimpanzees are are patriarchal and warlike. Those tell a very different potential story of human ancestry because they are actually matriarchal and peaceful. Now, they are in many ways similar to chimpanzees physically in that the males are bigger than the females, so they could dominate them if they... Because obviously the lazy idea is that physical dominance equals superiority. So any animal where males are bigger than females, they are naturally going to dominate them, right? That's the sort of standard lazy idea that gets trotted out. But the bonobos... Same as with chimpanzees and similar to humans, males are a bit bigger than females. So the assumption is that that males are dominant. But in the bonobos, they don't. That's because the females have formed an incredibly strong sisterhood, but they're not related to each other. And this is really important. Same as with chimpanzees, the females are not related to each other. But normally, unrelated females are competitive with each other, right? So what's different about the bonobos is they're not competitive with each other because they've established and maintained incredibly strong bonds by having sex with each other. So sex basically releases lots of oxytocin and is really good for forming social bonds. So the females having sex, they're not competing with one another. They're suddenly all forming these bonds. And, and, and because the females have formed this powerful alliance, they stand up to the males and they actually dominate the males. So this story is brilliant for a number of reasons. One, it shows that you can't make the assumption that, that size equals dominance or that sex equals dominance, that males are more dominant than females. But it also shows the flexi- so it shows the flexibility of dominance. It also shows the flexibility of sexuality because all bonobos, the, the males are also very keen on sex with females, but also with other males. Franz Duval, who's been studying them for many years, t- told me that he thinks that all bonobos are fundamentally bisexual. And maybe we are too. And actually, the idea that sex is just about reproduction, it's just meant to be between males and females, is just such a sort of Victorian idea. Of course it isn't. Sex is a great way of forming and establishing relationships and forming bonds. This idea that it, it, that we, we view the world through these heteronormative goggles, that we expect all sex to be between males and females is very old-fashioned and something that we're in the kind of process of overturning now. 
do you think that we are right now going through this sexual revolution where we exploring different spectrums of sexuality and that this th- this sort of phenomenon on a larger scale is actually a part of our biological evolution like that it's a way in which females are responding to the like kind of male dominance in our society and getting their competition back do you think that has something to do with it Well, I know I like your thinking. I tell you what I think it is. I think it's cultural. So Angela Saini has written a really brilliant book about patriarchy, came out this year, and I interviewed her earlier this year. She's a really fantastic scholar who writes popular science books. She wrote an amazing book, Inferior, about how female scientists were underrepresented in science. And then her latest book has been looking at the roots of patriarchy, right? And where it started. And she thinks it started patriarchal dominance, so male dominance in amongst humans, dates back about 5,000 years. It's, this, it's tied to the start of nation states. And basically, once you have these big nation states, they need to defend themselves. And that means they need male soldiers and they need females to give birth to male soldiers and to increase the population. And that is when you start seeing these binary definitions and binary binary definitions of, of masculinity and femininity. Before that, things were much more fluid. Females, we now know, we have evidence that females hunted alongside males and, and males gathered tubers alongside females. It just, I don't think that, I think this idea of this sort of these binary ideas that we have about males and females and their roles and their identities, they're all tied up with this cultural evolution of patriarchal systems that that Angela Saini has traced back to just post Mesopotamia. I'm probably I might be getting my dates wrong because I'm not a historian. I'm a zoologist, but I think it's around about 5000 years ago. So, I think it's a cultural evolution, but of course, culture influences biology and the things are entwined. What you're talking about may well be happening in a cultural sense if not a biological sense, but that will have an impact. Yeah, it's interesting. It's hard sometimes to distinguish the where the biases are coming from. Are they coming from our interpretation of biology? Are they coming from religion? Probably a combination of all, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's it's we are humans are terrible for viewing the world through the prism of our own existence. That is how and we've looked to the animal kingdom to tell us stories about ourselves, but by viewing them through goggles that only see ourselves. And so if science is only told by old white Western men, then you're going to get a view of, of animals that are as defined by old white Western men. Bias is it's everywhere. We're all guilty of it. But I think what's fantastic and really exciting, I think, about the times that we're living in now is that we're aware of it. We weren't aware of unconscious bias 10 years ago, I don't think particularly. But now we are. And so at least we can discuss it and we can check our biases and try and always sort of debate things with people from different opinions or different cultures, different genders, different sexualities to try and flush out the truth. Absolutely. Another myth or another topic I wanted to talk to you about was motherhood. Mm-hmm. And in particular, this idea that we are just naturally motherly and it should come very easily and naturally to any woman when she has a baby to have that maternal instinct kick in. Can you talk a little bit about that and also the paternal instinct and that kicking in as well? What do we see in animals? 
Yeah, so I think this is particularly poisonous, this myth of maternal instinct, as I was never maternal myself, right? I never wanted to have babies and I always felt like a bit of a freak as a result. And I've got plenty of female friends of mine who did want to have babies very desperately. And then when they got them, they were overwhelmed and they couldn't manage and and they were made to feel terrible for not being able to breastfeed or finding it difficult. And this idea of all women are meant to be imbued with this sort of natural sense of nurturing is it's just a way to shame us and beat us down because when you see in the animal kingdom that is not the case right and it took female scientists to see this right because basically with nobody was studying the females because they were passive boring not interesting and so they only looked at the males having these big showy fights over dominance so that's where all the interest was And it was Jean Altman, actually, who's this amazing primatologist, amongst others, Shirley Strahm and Barbara Smutson. There's been a whole, Sarah Blaffer-Hurley, there's been a whole raft of amazing female scientists, uh, primatologists, rather, sorry. But Jean Altman, I write about in the book because she was one of the first who she could teach teach logic to Captain Spock. She wasn't allowed to to study maths because she was a woman. And and mathematics loss was zoology's gain because she brought that incredibly analytical mind into the field and studied baboons with her husband because that's all that she had available to her. And she started documenting the females and in particular the mothers and what the how, how the mothers coped with motherhood and what she found was that it's a really steep learning curve and that baboon mothers are basically what she's called dual career mums they've got to make a living finding food all the while keeping pace with the troop and trying to nurse a baby because the males are not involved in parental care in, in baboons. And and so she, she recognised that this was a really difficult job and she could see that actually for first-time mums, they often, they really struggled. In fact, there was a huge mortality rate anyway. I think it was something like, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it's something like 30 to 50%, I think, of babies die because it's so difficult being a mother. But first-time mums, and I do know this statistic, are 60% more likely to lose their offspring, for their offspring to die, because that learning curve is so steep. Baboons struggle to breastfeed too, and it has really serious consequences, and those babies die. Also, what was really fascinating that came out of her research is that status counts, right? So most primate societies, you'll have a male dominant system, an alpha male, but you also have an alpha female. And that's a completely separate system. And it's often a matriline. So it's inherited. So the females often stay within the group. And it's the males that leave the group and go to other groups and end up fighting other males for dominance. Whereas the female, females are the core, the stable core of the group. And for those females that inhabit the, the upper ranks of this nobility, this inherited nobility, they were far more successful. So the females that are higher up the hierarchy, their babies tend to survive more and and they have more of them They have than females who are lower down. And they've now found it's not just humans that get postpartum depression. Macaques and baboons have both been observed aggressively attacking their babies. And so that's normal too, right? It, it, and it often it, it tends to be these females that have a more of a stressful experience as mothers that are more likely to suffer from what appears to be postpartum depression in them, right? So there you go. The so-called maternal instinct is actually a steep learning curve and it needs to be triggered. And it, it is not naturally triggered by just giving birth, which we know that from humans, but yet 
We don't see what's in front of our eyes. And then there's this amazing work very recently by Catherine Dulac, who's at Harvard, who actually found this neuronal architecture in the brain for nurturing. And she found that it's actually, it's a switch. And it's actually this bit of the brain that's associated with nurturing on one side of the switch and the other side of the switch is infanticide. So now that sounds a bit weird, right? But actually, the thing is that it makes complete sense because a mother, an animal mother, um, may kill her babies if they're unfavorable conditions. If she's incredibly stressed or if there isn't enough food, she might kill them because she just can't support them. So that's infanticide. Or she'll kill somebody else's babies if they're competing with her. But she wants to, but she'll want to nurture her own. So it's you can see it's like an on-off switch. Anyway, so that's like a switch for maternal instinct. But what's fascinating is Catherine Dulac has found exactly the same architecture in male brains. So there's a switch for parenting instinct, rather, in both the brains of males and females, and it's identical. She doesn't know what the trigger is, but it, it's exactly the same because males also can be infanticidal. They can kill, as we've talked about it earlier, they'll kill babies. It, it's just when he's beginning to get a, a picture now of like the complexities of these things, do you see what I mean? And that, that helps us understand maybe with a bit more of a forgiving understanding of the challenges of motherhood and how it doesn't just, you know, having a baby just instantly turn you into this sort of wise nurturing creature. And actually, you've got an awful lot to learn. And if things aren't triggered correctly, there may well be some significant struggles with that psychologically as well. I like that. So giving birth itself does not necessarily trigger the parental instinct. And it's there's still something that needs to happen for it to be triggered. And that instinct doesn't just exist in mothers. It also does exist in fathers, which is also not something that we often think about. Yeah. So, I mean, it can be triggered in, in adoptive mums or adoptive dads. They can all be triggered to be nurturing in the same way. What Catherine Dulac's work shows is that the fundamental instinct to nurture is the same in males and females. It can be triggered in both the males and females, whether they've given birth and breastfed or not, which I think is a wonderful thing for people to realize. And what do you think in general? Because we've, we've talked about quite a few different animals. We've talked about different behaviors, different biological characteristics. What's the point of it all, you think, of looking at animals, of looking at the animal kingdom? What lessons or what lesson do you think we're learning? Oh, well, I think it's incredibly important to look at the animal kingdom because I think when you see the breadth of the female experience and how it goes from the anemone fish that starts out male and becomes female to the murderous female meerkat to the female mole that actually has, she actually has gonads that are part testy and through to, through to the, the baboon mother who's learning the ropes, through to the, the female bonobo that's overthrown the patriarchy through ecstatic same-sex frottage. When you see all of these different ways of being female, I think it, it, it reminds us of the role of diversity this sort of extraordinary diversity that we see within our own species of different sexualities and, and different gender identities and different ways of being from aggressive, competitive women through to natural mums and the whole lot. It's just, it's all diversity. And diver the diversity is the grit that drives evolution forward. Without it, we'd cease to evolve. And when you see how that diversity runs wild in the animal kingdom, it makes you, I think that then helps us 
be more understanding of the scope of the female experience as humans. I love that. What was the most surprising or challenging part of writing the book? I think the most surprising was the female mole because I, I was really shocked by that. I knew that there were species of fish that change sex and that they change from being male to female. And so that means that their gonads change from being testes to ovaries. What's fascinating about those fish is anemone fish that which have been studied is that change in biological sex happens separate to their gender identity, as it were, because the female, the fish, as soon as they start, because you, the, the males change to females when you remove the dominant female. So if you do that, then the male immediately starts behaving as a female and is recognised by a fe- as a female by other fish, but the gonads take a year to catch up. So these fish are halfway through the change. They are biologically male, but their gender identity is female. So that's really interesting, right? But the thing that really blew my mind is with the mole, because you you think this sort of gonadal flexibility doesn't exist in mammals, right? But the female mole has ovotestes. So she has ovaries that have a large chunk of testicular tissue. And that tissue during the breeding season, um, or during the breeding season, she lays eggs. That's why she's classed as a female But outside of the breeding season, the testicular tissue swells and pumps up tons of testosterone, doesn't make sperm, so she remains female. But so her gonads are flexible. They they change, some of the tissue changes from being ovarian tissue to testicular tissue. And that really blew my mind. And I think that now, very recently in the last few years, there was a global consortium of, of scientists who looked at the moles genome and figured out how they achieve this. And it's just like this tiny tweak in one of the genes. And what I discovered by researching that was that, and this the thing that really blew my mind, is that the genes that make an ovary or make a testes, they're the same 60 genes, right? So the trigger in humans is the presence or absence of the SRY gene. But outside of that trigger, which is different things to different animals, um, the genes that actually make an ovary or a testes are the same genes. They just play to a different tune. When you understand that, then these ideas of us being these separate creatures with determined different sex roles, sexualities, and it all being very separate, it just blows that out of the water and makes us understand why we have such a rich diversity within our own species. Because it's neither linear nor distinct, the, the two pathways to being male or female. It's not a, it, it's a mess. It's a chaotic mess. <laughs> so do you think there is no difference between male and female brain? A topic that is controversial. There's different opinions on that. Do you think there's a biological difference or is it all... <laughs> well, I was just showing this book, The Gendered Brain by Gina Rippon. She doesn't think there is. I, you'll have plenty of scientists who will say, yes, there are. They'll point to small differences. But basically, it, it's one of those things. Darwin thought that males were more intelligent than females and that we were inferior creatures. And was, there's been for years all sorts of... that. They just... That there are the, the differences that exist are to do with reproduction and to, to do with running hormone systems. But even still, there's a huge overlap because we have huge overlap in, in our systems. Essentially, the differences are, are very minimal and they're not, we, we don't have pink and blue brains. It's, they, we've been searching for these large scale differences in behaviors. And other than 
a propensity for extreme violence, which males have rather than females. That is really the only gender difference. And that could be cultural rather than biological. That could be a small biological difference with a sort of a tendency towards being combative that is exaggerated by culture, cultural shaping the brain. So yeah, there's not really, there's not really big differences in the brain. Is there any research, any new theses, any new science, anything that you're currently interested in and are thinking about? I'm writing a book about males now because males are just as sort of stereotyped by these patriarchal definitions as, as females. We have all these ideas about what is an alpha male, or if you talk to a primatologist, it's nothing like popular culture thinks an alpha male is. So I thought it was time to look at that and look at what it really means to be males. I'm drilling into that a lot more at the moment. And there's some fascinating work that I'm, we all have to read the next book in order to find out. I love that. Can't wait for it. Do you have a release date? It's going to take me another year to write it. Yeah, it takes a long time. It's probably out in a couple of years' time. And it's going to be called Cock and Bull, The Great Masculinity Myth. <laughs> You're very good at this, at the titles for the books. They have a certain power and energy in them themselves. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Amazing. The book truly is incredible. And I do think it is revolutionary. And I could ask you a million more questions about all the different animals that are featured in the book and about your new ideas and opinions, but I don't have all the time in the world with you, unfortunately. And I did want to also say just thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, I hope that you know that the book that you wrote and the ideas and everything that you put forth, it went and is going way beyond evolutionary biology. And it's reaching um, different groups and different sectors, and it's reaching the technology sector, which is where I reside. And there are so many entrepreneurs in female sexual wellness, entrepreneurs that are building products for uh, menopause, for maternity solutions that are inspired by what you're doing and the myths, that, the busting of the myths and the, yeah, and the revolution that, that you're starting and, and creating. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's been a delight to talk to you, Corinna. And I'm especially pleased to, to connect with audiences outside of science because it is, it's important we understand what it really means to be female. Incredible. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this conversation, you will definitely love Lucy's book. I have included a link in the show notes. Check it out. I will also link to her website so you can see more of her amazing work. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Mother Podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts, because if you found the topic of female evolutionary biology interesting, you're likely going to enjoy some of the other topics that I cover on the show, such as longevity, future of medicine, psychedelics, sexuality, and other cutting-edge topics at the intersection of femininity, technology, and science. 